leave room for the unknown. Um, otherwise, your story has already written itself and is just going to get worse and darker. But if you leave room for, you know, the unknown possibility, then it can just be better than you ever imagined. <laughs> and I know that sounds cliche, but it is so true. That was Cold Chance, and this is The Share Podcast. It's time for The Share Recovery Podcast, where we bring you amazing life-changing success stories from addicts and alcoholics all over the world who share their inspiring journey in recovery. And now, here's your host, Oh. On today's episode of The Share Podcast, we have Cole Chance joining us. She is awesome. I love her story. And the reason why I call the episode Dope Sick is because her bottoms were some of the lowest bottoms that I've had the opportunity to record. Her story is gut-wrenching and at the same time is absolutely inspirational to all of our newcomers. She has overcome adversities that most of us can only have nightmares about. Today, she is a yoga instructor, a Y12SR yoga instructor. She is a Thai massage therapist and a world traveler. She's a badass, and I can't wait to jump into her story. But first, if you have not yet rated and reviewed the Share Podcast, please, one of the best ways to help support the show is to go to iTunes, leave us a five-star rating and a review, and that helps catapult us up the ratings on iTunes, which will make it easier for more and more people to find the Share Podcast. Now, in the past, many of you have asked, hey, oh, how can I help support the show? Well, I'm going to keep it simple for you. First, I want to thank the people who have sent us donations via PayPal. There are a few of you that still continuously send donations on a monthly basis, but we can always use more. So on a weekly basis, I have over 5,000 listeners every week who listen to the Share Podcast. So if 100 of you guys would send me five bucks a month, that would completely support the show from beginning to end. So for those of you who have the wherewithal to send me five bucks, either PayPal or by Patreon, then please feel free to do so. We could really use the support. Also, when you're purchasing stuff on Amazon, there are those of you that are still clicking on the Amazon link on the Share Podcast website before doing their purchases on Amazon. But again, there are thousands of you listening. If each and every one of you could just remember to go to the Share website, click on the Amazon button before you do your shopping, that is also going to make a tremendous difference for us financially. So I haven't been one to emphasize it in the past, right? But now we've got a solid listener base. I know you guys love the show. I know you guys get a lot out of it. There are those of you just like in the meetings that are newcomers, the money's tight. Keep listening. The show will always be for free. The Share Podcast private accountability group will always be for free. But for those of you who can, kick in a couple of bucks. Help us out here. And not to forget the Share Podcast private accountability group. Again, it's growing like crazy. Guys, go to the Share Podcast, www.thesharepodcast. Click on the button that says join the Facebook private group. For those of you that are in the private accountability group, you know how vital and important that has become. There's over 1,500 members in there. If you don't want to go to meetings, if you have problems connecting with people, if you need something more than just the podcasts and are not ready to cross over into meetings or some other structured program, then the private accountability group is perfect for you. Jump in there, make comments, ask questions, or just read the posts. There are so many people out there that have the same questions that you have. All you have to do is just read those and then read all the follow-up answers and responses that come. And make sure to subscribe to my weekly newsletter so you know every single time a brand new episode is launched. And of course, if you have any questions, just email me, o at thesharepodcast.com, and I'll get back to you as soon as possible. So now a quick message from our sponsors, and then on to the show. Would you like to join a free, anonymous online group that offers a daily topic email with popular recovery resources accompanied by a secret Facebook group for discussion? Then go to dailyaaemails.com for more information about Transitions Daily. And don't forget to share dailyaaemails.com with friends, in meetings, and with sponsees in recovery. 
Sober Nation is the largest online recovery community and treatment resource center. They provide treatment resources to those struggling with addiction, as well as to the family members who are caught in the crossfire. On top of that, Sober Nation is a huge community of good people who share their experience with each other. They have informative content, recovery and addiction news, as well as an entire clothing line which helps expand the culture of recovery. They can easily be found at www.SoberNation.com. Sober Nation is putting recovery on the map. Hi, Cole. Thanks for joining us. Hello. It's great to have you on the show. How are you feeling? I'm good. I'm wonderful. It was a beautiful October day in Austin. (laughs) Oh, I love it. All right, so Cole, let's dive right in. Tell us about how your life is today. Give us all of it, the hobbies, exercise, your normal routine, including recovery. All right. Well, my normal routine, I wake up in the morning cuddling my Bernese Mountain Dog. Oh, my God. <laughs> that's, the, that's the first thing that we do. It's a little different every day. Um, I like it that way. I have every day is like a new exciting day. It's all, normally a mix of yoga and uh, body work. I do Thai massage and table massage. I film YouTube videos. I'm um, booking yoga workshops. I'm having lunch dates, more yoga. I just recently started to try to create a new relationship with running. So that has been interesting. And it's been wonderful. I'm setting my own schedule and just really getting to do the things that I, that I really enjoy as a job. Absolutely. So, Cole, tell us, how do you maintain your spiritual condition, that conscious contact with a higher power? You know, I've really found my higher power through my yoga practice is really how I came, came to come to that. I struggled in AA, as I think a lot of people do. Yes. And I, you know, it really started to make sense to me on my yoga mat. Like I started to really begin to come inside and start to find like some inner power, I guess you would say. There's this one quote that I love from um, BKS Iyengar that says, there's a dormant spark of divinity in each of us that it must be fanned into flames by yoga. And I found that way after the fact that I was like, that's exactly what it is. So I think on my yoga, I think on my yoga mat, I was able to really kind of come back into my own body. I spent so much time trying to get away from myself and just to be able to sit with myself and to listen that I was really able to start to make a contact. Absolutely. So Cole, how much clean time do you have and when is your anniversary date? It is August 26th of 2013. So... Yeah, going on a little over two years now, which is unbelievable, completely. <laughs> that <laughs> completely two year, unbelievable. Oh, of course, that two-year milestone is huge. It's fantastic. I love it. So tell us a little bit about how old you were the first time you drank or used drugs, and more importantly, how did they make you feel? Well, I remember it very clearly, as I think a lot of us do. Um, I think I was... 13 or 14, and I was at like a friend's house that I played soccer with, and her parents were out of town. And we were having like a pool party, and we'd gotten into some peppermint schnapps and some rum, and we were floating in some inner tubes in the pool. And I remember like sitting in it and like spinning the tube around, Uh and I was like looking up at the sky, and the stars were out, and I felt so amazing. And I remember just lying there talking to myself, like, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. (laughs) Like, it was hands down, no question. Like, I had found it. All right, Cole, you're all warmed up. So I'm going to turn this show over to you. It's time for you to share your story, the battle against drugs and alcohol, the wreckage it caused in your life, when you hit rock bottom, and finally your journey into recovery up until today. So Cole, take it away. All right, all right. So, I started with peppermint schnapps. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you did. Yes, I did. So, after that, it was, um, you know, we were so young, and we just kind of started, you know, here and there. 
um, smoking pot or getting some of our parents' alcohol. Um, my parents didn't drink. They just never had. I was never around it. Um, come to find out later, my mother's like older brother was an alcoholic and, um, Mm. my dad was really big into sports his whole life. So he just didn't, he just chose not to drink. He was like a collegiate athlete, but so it was never really in my house. I was never around it, but we started to find it at other people's houses. And, you know, that was starting to be like kind of the goal. That's what we were looking to do. You know, even really at a young age, it started to become, you know, a little bit of an obsession, like, that's what we're talking about all week. Like, who can we find older brother to buy us something? And, you know, we weren't hardly drinking anything or doing anything. But it was this really exciting, you know, even just the prospect of getting it was exciting. Everything was exciting about it. And, um, yeah, it was just fun and, like, a little devious and just kind of all of that excitement that you probably have as a teenager. Or I did. No, nope, I did, too. You know, <laughs> doing something, <laughs> doing something naughty, I guess, or doing something bad. Right. So, you know, very quickly, you know, I was cheerleading and playing sports and I was a really good student. And, you know, I always had a hard time, like not fitting in. I was popular, but like, there was always like a group of people that I wanted to hang out with, like the older kids that I was nervous around. Like I had social anxiety around. I, I just remember that anxiety and, you know, once I started the, the alcohol and, you know, the smoking pot and all that, you know, I, I lost it. But I kind of also started hanging out with, you know, obviously different people. Mm-hmm. So I was surrounding myself around people that I wasn't, that were doing what I was wanting to do and I wasn't nervous around. And, you know, I was able to shed that anxiety. So very quickly, you know, my friends are changing. Everything's starting to change. I in like dating this older guy, of course. And <laughs> that's always love, part of it. I love the, of course, of course. <laughs> and I started sneaking out of the house at night. I was like mm-hmm. sneaking out of the house, like every night to, um, to go and to drink and be with this guy. Yep. And I could still probably close my eyes and like retrace my steps through the house, like turn off the fan here, turn up the air conditioning, like the whole way, my little uh, pathway that I had. And, I started doing that and, you know, I, I wind up sleeping with this guy and I'm 14 and the first time I have sex, I got pregnant. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. How much older was this guy? He was 18. Ah, okay. Okay. All right. Yeah. So he was 18 and, you know, he was shitting a brick. Oh my God. I can't even imagine. I can't even imagine. So it eventually comes out. This kind of year is a little fuzzy just because I think I went into like mortification mode. But, you know, we wind up, my parents find out, the whole school finds out, um, we wind up having a termination and we move states. Like my parents move me to a different state. Yep. To a different school. I get it. I just like shut down. Mm -hmm. I won't talk to my family. I won't, I, I really don't even remember what was going on with me. It's just kind of a blur. But I think at that time, that is when I was introduced to shame. That's the first time in my life, like never before that I didn't really have, I didn't have a history or a past of, you know, a bad childhood or anything like that. But whenever that happened, I would have been an alcoholic no matter what. So this isn't, this didn't change my path, but I certainly didn't help. It didn't help. No, No, it didn't help. Mm -mm. But it labeled myself as bad. Yeah. Like I didn't make a bad choice and have an accident and, you know, it wasn't like a cause and effect thing in my head, it was like, I am bad. Mm. So I started to carry that with me. And then of course I, I hate my parents yeah. <laughs> right now. We all do. <laughs> and uh, I know, I know. Gosh, poor parents. But then, you know, it just continued. And through high school, I, um, yeah, I just continued. I'd meet the, the wrong crowd. You know, my parents, my poor dad is picking me up from bonfires. <laughs> like, <laughs> By now, I'm, uh, I had this big phase where I was only drinking straight tequila. I don't know. And wearing a cowboy hat. Like that was my gig at these bonfires. Like, super goofy. But I was just drinking to oblivion. And I remember, like, I also remember spending a lot of time thinking about, like, how to get completely trashed but keep my cool. Mm-hmm. Like, where that line was. We get very um, precise and, like, mathematical <laughs> about our addiction. And this is, I was, like, 15 you can but, try. Oh my gosh, what a mess. <laughs> you can try. I know. But after I about know. the fucking 12 drink. 
Uh, Math goes out the window. Oh, yeah, totally, totally. So I'm at this school for a while, and then I get sent to, like, this rehab for, like, bad kids in the middle of the woods in Idaho. Whoa. And, like, learn how to build fire with sticks and, like, all kinds of really intense things. And so then I come out of that, and I hate my parents even more. (laughs) (laughs) And they move me to another place. And this happens to be a big party town in the middle of Missouri. It's called Lake of the Ozarks. And um, my father knew the principal there. He was good friends with him, so thought that, you know, I could kind of be watched over. But, you know, really, this was a huge party town, and this is where I was introduced to cocaine. Yeah, a lot of cocaine and ecstasy and crack cocaine. Wow, how old were you? Um, 16, Oh, 17. my God. Yeah. Oh, and I'm, from I'm go. Very, I look very, um, I always looked really old for my age. I'm about six foot tall. Oh, my, really? Yeah, yeah. And um, so I... I've always carried myself in an older fashion. I had a fake ID when I was like 15. (laughs) It was ridiculous. But I was introduced into this kind of atmosphere. It was a lot, a lot of money and a lot of uh, parties and a lot of uh, everybody drove yachts. You drove your yacht to the bar instead of like your car. Right. So I'm in this environment and I'm feeling like euphoric. Yeah, I'm getting to go wherever I want. I'm getting, you know, I'm riding on these big, these big boats, these big yachts. And it's very glamorous in my mind. And I guess a little bit before this, I graduate when I was 17. So I was young as well. So I, I, I leave my parents' house early. If I remember correctly, I crawled out of my parents' house. Because you were wasted? Because yes. you were wasted? Yes. Oh. Yeah. And, um, ugh. Luckily, I'm happy that a lot of these memories, we only have half memories of. Unfortunately, they remember all of them. But, <laughs> um, yeah, so I leave, I leave my parents' house like midway through my senior year, and I just start living with friends and doing that whole thing. But, yeah, so I'm living this like so-called glamorous lifestyle, hanging out with these like much older men at these, these big parties. And, you know, it doesn't seem dirty when you're – you know, smoking crack in a mansion. Right. Right. You know, it was a lot different. You know, that's not where I ended, <laughs> but <laughs> that's where it started. That's where it like started. I, I wasn't getting those, those like thoughts of like, this is nasty or this is, I mean, this was, I was with the, I was playing with the cool kids. Well, what year was this? This would have been, I think I graduated high school in 2002. So okay. about 2002. Ah, okay. Okay. All right. Well, Cocaine's always been considered the glamour drug. It's always been, you know, a glamorous sort of drug for the elite because A, it's so expensive and because of the effects that it has. So, you know, when you first come into it, you're enamored by it. It's almost like a fantasy world. Just, yeah, the invincibility. And, you know, when I think, when I kind of think back about, you know, the glamour part of it, you know, I can see myself with like my, my head thrown back laughing and it's like bliss and euphoria and just like this, I mean, I can have that picture, which I know is false, but like, that's kind of how I saw myself, I suppose. That's how we all did. I mean, I, right. I, the first time I did cocaine, you know, I was 30, I was 29 years old and I go, oh my God, I can't believe I waited till I was 29 to do the most amazing <laughs> drug I've ever done in my life. I should have been taking yes. this since I was, when I was in high school, I would have passed. Oh, <laughs> uh, no kidding. Oh, I get yeah. it. Yeah, it's wild. So I wind up leaving that area. I had been in a pretty volatile relationship with um, a cocaine dealer, of course. Of course. <laughs> and um, that was just had went way far south. I leave the place, thankfully. So it was good. Yeah, it was, it was really, really good. I was getting out of a horrible relationship, and I was getting away from um, copious amounts of cocaine just in the closet. It was, in, it was endless. And I wind up leaving, and you know, I really look back at this at a very lucky, uh, as as a very lucky that I wind up. It got so bad that I had to leave relationship wise because I was still pretty fresh. I probably could have kept going on that track for a while. Right. Um, yeah, I remember laying in bed right before I left, a few days before I left, and we had like smoked so much that my throat was closing up, and I was scared to fall asleep because I didn't think I could breathe. Ugh horrifying yeah and that anxiety that comes along with that so thankfully i leave and i go to colorado and i'm gonna like do this fresh start thing and i moved to Vail with um thirty dollars 
and three credit cards because I just turned 18 and that's how many credit cards they'll give you. <laughs> and I don't think Vail's very cheap. It's not. I had a very grandiose idea of myself. So I'm moving to Vail, and it all worked. The first day I went there, I found a place to stay and a job. I had been cocktailing, of course, and I had a blast. I I still have dreams about Vail. I I just really did. This is before I really knew that I was in trouble. This first year in Colorado, this is really before I actually knew that, uh, yeah, I was in big trouble. But... Everybody in these mountain towns, it's just a party. Everybody's doing it. So I wasn't like standing out. And I li- wound up living in resort towns for about eight years. Um, I lived in Vail. I went to Telluride and uh, Tahoe and Steamboat Springs all over. But the problem with these things is like you can hide easier. You can hide from other people and you can hide from yourself. Right. Because it's not as, it's more rampant. Like they just, those mountain towns, I swear, just kind of breed it, but, <laughs> and, you know, working in bars and things, but I was able to hide it a little bit better. You know, I just partied. That's what everybody did. And I met this beautiful gypsy boy and we moved to Santa Cruz. So we're out on the, out on the West coast finally. So I'm kind of away from all my friends and I've moved with this on this romantic excursion in a 77 Catalina to the uh, West coast. But then I'm, here with just this one guy. And I started to realize that I wasn't really around, you know, all my friends who like, we'd drink beers before we went and go to snowboard or there wasn't like the people drinking bloody Mary's at the bars, a little bit different in Santa Cruz. Right. And it felt so odd. And I was like, I thought I was depressed, which I've never been like, that's not my nature. But I thought I was depressed or there was something wrong. You know, everything else is wrong, of course, besides what we're doing. But I start hiding my alcohol. And, you know, I'm dating. Like, he's obviously a party boy. Right. But I'm hiding it. And I'm starting to drink vodka in the mornings. And that's really when that started. The hiding and the, the yeah, the drinking in the mornings. Just to start to keep myself, to keep my body with enough in it to not uh, mentally feel like shit and not to physically feel like shit because I'm starting to shake already Okay. at 21. And, you know, we live out there and I, we moved to Tahoe. We're doing the same thing. I'm moving all the time. We're moving all the time. We're not, we're not happy anywhere we are, kind of, because it's always the environment and not what's going on. And we wind up going through a bad breakup and it was really heartbreaking to me. And I ended up in a rehab in Santa Cruz. And there... I was laying in a yoga class and I was supposed to be in detox, but I was laying there like shaking and hating myself. And I hear this lady talking and she's got the sweetest, softest voice. And she's talking about how she used to be a heroin addict. And now, you know, she's in recovery and she teaches yoga. You know, and part of me is like, bullshit. (laughs) And then the other part is like, wow, wow. You know, I take yoga through that treatment and I just remember like, God, like one day I didn't have any plans on staying sober, by the way. I just, I didn't feel good and I wanted to feel better for a little bit. But in the back of my head, that seed was planted that like someday I think I could do that, but I didn't think I would ever get sober. So that's kind of where I was introduced to yoga. So I kind of kept that persona with me a little bit. I really liked that. I was already kind of a hippie, but I liked that, that kind of lifestyle, that kind of, I started kind of reading about it here and there. So that was kind of the dual duality of, you know, starting to look at maybe something on the other side. Right. But that doesn't happen for a long time. (laughs) I go, I go back to Tahoe and, um, it got really, really bad. I went back to Tahoe with another friend of mine and I don't remember very much of that season. And he says it was a nightmare that um, I'm starting to really physically get really bad now. I'm very, very shaky if I'm not drinking, and I'm pretty much blacked out most of the time. But I'm very, my tolerance is very high. So, like, no one else can really, no one else really knows it. But I'm very, like, a high functioning blackout girl. I can go to work and, you know, do my thing, but just, you know, you know how it is. It's just bizarre right. how some of us can function like that. So it wasn't like everyone was like, oh, my God, like she needs help. It wasn't like that at all, unfortunately. 
And I get a DUI while I'm out there. And I started taking, having to go, I took my first, went to my first AA meeting, which was bizarre, really bizarre. I thought it was so bizarre. And I had to start taking AA classes, or not AA classes, alcohol classes in Tahoe. And I remember going to this class and I remember it was this, I still want to find this guy. I still, I still have it to find this guy, but this Indian, this uh, wonderful man that kind of took an interest in me or maybe not an interest in me, but just saw like how much pain I was in. And okay. So I was, I, I would go to class and I would have to drink before I would go. So they start breathalyzing me. So they're kicking me out. And then the days that I go that I'm not drinking, you know, I just can't drink within a certain amount of hours. So I get there in class and I'm like convulsing in my seat. Oh. And he's like, you're going to die. Like you are way too young to be having this many physical problems. Right. And I try with him several times to go. He also runs like a detox center. And I try several times to like go into detox, but I can stay for like one day. I can't stay. I just can't. I can't do it. And I wind up leaving. And I tried that several times. And throughout this, my parents had kind of been out several times to either take me to treatment or to take me, you know, to different various things. And they were just freaked out. I didn't know what to do either. But through this whole Tahoe experience, the second Tahoe experience, it was just really bleak and very, very bad. My friends at times, I, could, I couldn't eat and I didn't know I was having pancreatitis, but I didn't realize that was at the time. Like he would be like, I would have to eat just applesauce. I couldn't eat anything. Just really, these really big physical problems. And I went home. My grandmother died. So I flew home to Missouri and my friend came with me. And it was about three days. She had a funeral. The night of her funeral, we're sleeping. I'm sleeping in my old bedroom. And I don't remember this, but I guess my body just goes all exorcist style. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. Oh, no. And my friend said it was so scary. And I start screaming. And I kind of come to when my uncle, who my whole family is staying at the house, of course. My uncle is carrying me up the stairs. And I'm having a grand mal seizure. Because I haven't drank in three days. Yeah. That's probably the first time I hadn't drank in three days, I guess, since besides the rehab, which I did medical detox. But so they, and my whole family is there. So um, I'm in the hospital for like a week. And I keep trying to tell the doctor that it's stress related because my grandma died. Oh, wow. And it's not, you know, it's not at all. It's withdrawal. And I still hadn't even like that hadn't connected and it didn't connect for a while. I wound up going back to Tahoe and continuing, you know, on that thing. But now I, now I'm scared about these seizures because even though I won't like admit that it's from alcohol, I, I'm scared of it. And I start to use that as an excuse as well. Like say somebody's like, no, you can't have any more alcohol. Mm -hmm. I'll be like, Oh, you better get me some. I'm going to have a seizure. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. I love it. And I've even, I even remember like faking one one time. Terrible, terrible. Like just the shit that we do. Like you, if get me some alcohol and I will be fine. Yep. So I get to this point again in Tahoe to where, you know, I'm not working now. I'm finally to a point um, to where I'm not working. I start to get Xanax. I try to self-detox. And that's, you know, where things really go, you know, go haywire again. And I ended up in another treatment center in Oklahoma called Narconon. Have you heard of that? Yes. Yes. What an adventure. It's a Scientology rehab. Tell us a little and, bit about um, that because I've heard of it, but I don't know much about it. Oh, it's interesting. Um, I only stayed. Okay, so I always have to do medical detox, but they don't believe in any type of... Um, medication at all. So first I had to do seven days, just straight DTs. And it, it was awful. It was, it was awful. But what they would do, it was really strange. I only wind up staying for seven days, but they would like come into my room and they would be, they'd have a clipboard and they would say, look around the room and tell me something you can have. And I'd be like, what are you talking about? <laughs> like, what are you talking about? I feel so awful. And 
tell me, look around the room and tell me something you can have. And I would be like, my suitcase. And they would be like, wonderful, wonderful, and start taking notes. And they would do this like, they would do this a lot. I never figured out what, what exactly they were doing with that. Or they would tell me to touch something, like touch the picture frame and then let it go. And they'd be like, very good, very good. I'm not really sure what all, what all goes on there. I've had a couple friends that have went all the way through it though. And they say it's definitely bizarre. It sounds absolutely I, bizarre. And they, absolutely so you, bizarre. So how are you, because here's the deal. You're having these grand mal seizures because you're not drinking. You're having DTs because you're not drinking. You could die from the withdrawals and they're not right. giving you anything. Nothing. For seven days. Nothing. Vitamins. Oh my God. That's vitamins. Wild. Yeah. yeah. So wild. You, so you never had a seizure while you were in there? I didn't. Hmm, so I don't know how I didn't. Some kind of mystic pizza shit going on in there, man. I don't know. It's weird. Yeah. Okay, well. I know. I mean, it was a bad seven days. Oof. But they, um, yeah, I didn't, I didn't have a seizure. But whenever I, seven days were over, I couldn't use the phone until I was out of detox. And they yeah, wouldn't let me out of there for seven days. And then I went and I called my mother. And I'm like, Mom. My, my mom is very Christian. And I'm like, do you know I'm at a Scientology rehab? Because they had just grabbed me from Tahoe and like took me to the first place. Right. Like, put, me on a, put me on a plane and dropped me off at this place that has great reviews. And she's like, oh, honey, I'm already on my way. <laughs> she was already on her way from Missouri to come and pick me back up. Oh, thank God. Because she had no idea. And then she's like, you know, I, I want her to be sober, but I don't want her to be brainwashed. So whenever we leave, it was, it was crazy. It was really bizarre. They were like surrounding our car, like to getting us not to leave, like on walkie talkies, telling my mom that they're signing my death certificate. Like it was crazy. It was really crazy. Oh my but, God. Yeah. Wild. Okay. Wild. Note Give to my self. To death. Yeah. Listeners, Narconon. No, no, no. <laughs> Don't do it. <laughs> Don't do it. Don't do it. But I'm like, yay, free pass. Like I just busted out of rehab. Oh, <laughs> Dude. You know, so I go back to my parents' house, and all I all I'm doing is looking up like these terrible articles about Narcanon, and like to make my parents, you know, think they made the right decision. And I'm just going to do this on my own. And you know, I just kind of like did some working out. I went to some AA meetings in this tiny little town that was like me and um, six sixty plus year old men that all like became my grandpa, and. Um, <laughs> I stayed there for like a month or something. And then I told my parents, I, I'm leaving. I'm going, I think, I don't know. I was going back to Colorado or to Tahoe or somewhere. Yeah. So of course, you know, that doesn't, that doesn't pan out. But so through all of those places, I just started, I think I, I started getting this MO of getting flooded in my system, getting scared. Then I start going to the hospital. I start going to the hospital for the, for the benzos. I start, I start the cycle of, that was just my MO. It became my MO. And I started visiting hospitals all the time. I was in, in a lot and I would always wind up leaving, but I was wanting them to give me, um, give me medication. And, you know, it's really just a blur for a few more years. It's just, it's just kind of a blur. I went to another rehab somewhere in there. I don't even know. But they were taking, I was only getting, when, when you would go to the hospitals, and they would give you benzos. Was what was the purpose of getting of, of putting you on the benzos? To keep me from seizing. Ah, okay. So this is this yeah. is to get you. This is to wean you off the alcohol, the benzodiazepines. Yes. Okay, I got you. Yeah, they wean me. They wean me off the alcohol, and you know what else they do though is if they also if i decide to have a big party night or i'm going to a festival or i'm you know it's going to be a big party night if i take it before i go to bed i won't wake up shaking mm. so i find that out so that's another thing that i'm doing or i'm going to doctors and lying to get them so i'm using them i'm really just using them as a crutch i'm just yeah. using them to party more and then eventually that hits brings me into a wall those two together man just on and on and that just feels like a loop. And I did that. I did that for quite a while. I started to reach out. I did. I would start to, to reach out to people. Like I, I liked going to see counselors. I wasn't liking the AA, but I, I knew that there was a problem and I was reaching out and I don't really know in what 
in what aspect necessarily. Like I, I'd call the AA hotline and have people come over and hang out with me. Why, you know, I just am telling them sob stories. I think there's something about some part of our addiction that we get addicted to like the tragedy of ourselves. Yes. Like, look at me. Mm-hmm. Like we want some validation of how bad we are. And I right. think that's what I was looking for. Just bizarre. Like it's, it sounds so sick, but it, I mean, that's exactly what we are. We were really sick. Bunch of drama queens. Bunch of drama queens. Wow. <laughs> totally. I'm such a drama queen. And so I do this for, I do this for a while and I end up in Steamboat Springs and I'm doing the same thing. I'm having, going to the hospital every few days or the fire truck will show up at my house or all kinds of things. Just I'm calling the ambulance right and left. Just madness. My family comes and picks me up. They agree to come and get me. They, I agree, I guess, to go. I'm completely out of money. I have no money. I've lost all my jobs. I'm completely out of money. I have pancreatitis. I've been at the hospital for this. My, my skin is yellow. It's, it's, just, it's, it's just bad. The, the withdrawals are so intense. And, you know, I'm just like, I'm sitting outside waiting for the liquor stores to open in the morning. Like, oh my God. it was just so bad. I couldn't do anything else. I couldn't, I was all consumed. My yeah. energy was all consumed with drinking or getting high or hiding it or not smelling like it or making sure I have enough for later. Like that's, it was, I was on a loop. I was just on a loop and my family I guess had been looking for a while. They'd been talking to this rehab down in Austin for a while and they were just waiting for me to say yes. So eventually they tell me yes. And I say yes, partly because like they can't put me on a plane. I can't fly because I have to keep drinking. Right. And the, even the doctor at the, at the rehab that I went to was like, yeah, you're going to have to drive her down here. So this was like my last ticket to drink. So my family was saying, we'll come and get you and take you. And you've got 24 or 20 hours and you can drink whatever you want on the way. (laughs) Oh my God. All right. Dude. So I finally do it. And, you know, my dad comes from one direction across the country to get my stuff. My uncle comes from another direction to pick me up and he drives me down. And if I did not sing classic rock to him the whole way down and, (laughs) Just was a mess. Really sad, though. I remember, like, making conversation and, you know, talking and singing and laughing. But I was, like, so sad. And we get down there. And I'm so loaded by the time I get there. I pretty much wake up the next day and I'm in Texas. It's kind of the way that that came about. And this was a three-month rehab. The other ones had been one month. And hands down... I recommend a three month if you're going the treatment route, because at one month they could not let me out of there. Like I was so jaded still like my mind. I was still, I was still crazy. The three month really did make a difference, even though I was not happy about it. The whole, I was not a happy camper, but I get out of this place and I'm in Austin and I'm at a sober house. I still don't think I'm going to be sober, but I think that I'm going to, I'm going to have to try Um, I don't have any money, but my parents will pay for me to go to the sober living. So I wind up staying in Austin and I get about six months sober. And this is pretty incredible. I had moved out of the sober house. I was going to yoga all the time and things were good. Things were really good. And I was really happy. I wasn't telling anybody that I was an alcoholic I hadn't came to grips with that part of it yet. Right. Like I could tell myself that and say it in the rooms, but I couldn't tell other people. And that had been a problem before. Like I had relapsed several times, you know, when I had a little bit of sobriety, just, you know, out of sheer not wanting to tell people. But I went out to lunch with this guy and it was a massage client of mine. And we went to this like really nice French restaurant. And I remember the waiter coming over and saying, would you like a glass of Chardonnay or a glass of Sauvignon Blanc? And I just said, Sauvignon Blanc. And he brought a glass of wine to me and I took one sip and my whole body all the way down to my toes were like, fuck yeah. Like butterflies through my whole system. Mm -hmm. 
just that, I mean, of course I wasn't buzzed or anything, but just that one little system, like all of my cells were like, here we go. Here we go. Oh yeah. So I, you know, I made it through that day and I think it was the very next day that I, I think I remember like going to REI to buy this coat or something and like drinking a beer in their bathroom, something crazy, like not being able to stop, not, not being able to not stop at the gas station that was next to REI because I'd already like opened that can of worms. Yeah. Yeah. And I couldn't like even wait to get home or anything. It was just like, I just had to have it. You know, that opened up the worst of the worst. I'd, so I'd went to treatment here in Austin and I didn't know anybody. I didn't know anybody else. I didn't have, you know, any friends here. I only knew people in the recovery community, which, you know, it seems like that could be a good thing, right? But not when you relapse. Right. Because then I only knew the other people who relapsed. So I called, the people that I called were like the worst of the worst. You know, my my people who, yeah. The other the hardcore the partiers. <laughs> the other hardcore <laughs> yeah. partiers. And I didn't even call, I didn't even think it was partying. So by this time, you know, the, the party had ended a while back, but by this time, like, I hadn't been to a bar. Like, there was no fun involved. By this time, it was like, you have all that guilt attached to it after yeah. after you're doing all this. So it was like hiding and, you know, sneaking around. And I had started drinking, and I had had this really great job. I had this really great job um, at the spa. And, you know, I started, I started drinking at work. And, well, I, I mean, I had been doing this for years. I, ha- I had to take alcohol to work. I would put it in my Nalgene and in my water bottle and I just had to keep enough in my system, but it started getting bad and I started getting some benzos, that whole cycle kind of again. And I wind up leaving. Um, I didn't have anything with me one day at work and I was in the middle of a massage and like my withdrawals were so bad and I was shaking so bad. I just left. I turned the client over and I walked out and I called my friend and he came and picked me up and, and he was a junkie and I hadn't to this point done. I mean, I had smoked some heroin or something, but to this point I hadn't done anything. And I was like, I really want to quit drinking. Like this is crazy. And so he has a bright idea that this will help me not drink. And of course I say, yes. So we start down this path. So for the next, um, probably four months, I'm, um, now adding heroin onto my resume. Oh man. And you know, not in a good place to, I mean, nobody's ever in a good place to start doing that, but I had so much, you know, I was already in that hiding mentality and, um, it was just bad. I get kicked out of my house. I was living with people in recovery. Yeah. The sneakiness, the sneakiness of it, you know, that that's a really big piece of it. That sneakiness. I end up kind of living in some hotels. I went to a sober house at one point, but got kicked out for drinking so I was kind of like back and forth between kind of flopping at people's houses and hotels. I went to a detox at one point and I left with somebody in detox and he was a beautiful schizophrenic <laughs> Lebanese junkie. Oh my God. Yeah, I know. And uh, we left detox together. It, then it got worse from there, you know, for a month, a month of that, they let me back in the detox. I came back out and did the same thing. I mean, my family is not talking to me. My friends aren't talking to me. Uh, the count, my, you know, my counselor is calling the cops on me if she can figure out where I am. Cause she's trying to say that I'm a harm to myself. She's just trying to get somebody to pick me up. Right. And I just don't care about anything. So in between, you know, the hotel and the crack house, it was bad. It was bad. And this was somewhere where I didn't think I was going to be. So talking about, you know, smoking crack in a mansion and then smoking crack at a compound, you know, trailers with no wheels and prostitution and children running around. I mean, it was really nasty. And just kind of looking around, I had some moment of kind of looking around at like, what has happened? What has happened? And I was laying down on this bed by this girl and some people were doing their thing, like splitting up, whatever they were splitting up. And I was laying down by this girl and there was a, a mirror on the ceiling. And I looked up and she was sleeping next to me on the bed. And she was probably about 15 or 16. She was very young. Oh, and it just kind of made me think like, oh my God, this poor girl. And like, I have been doing this for a long time, you know, and thinking about myself. And it was a few days after that, that 
I had done, I don't even know, whatever it was they gave me. I don't even know. I wasn't even asking questions. I was just putting my arm out. And I was standing up. And then I dropped to my knees. And I was trying to talk. And my words were coming out like, I remember them being like, oh, shit. Like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Like, I remember them freaking out above me. And then I woke up like hours later. Nobody's there. You know, you've heard that story. (sighs) And I don't know. I don't know what happened. I don't know. I really, I still don't really know what happened, but I woke up and I was trying to make it back to where, to my hotel or something. And I remember it was like 104 degrees, something. It felt like hotter than that. And I was trying to walk across the street to this bus stop and I like couldn't turn my head because my brain was vibrating in my skull. So I'd have to turn my whole body to be able to look across the street to see if there was a car coming. And I like turned myself back around and kind of head on. And I got back to this, I think it was, I think I was, had renting, renting a room at the moment. I got back to this room and it was across the street from a liquor store. And I bought some alcohol that I thought would last me for the next couple of days. Cause I just wanted to lay there and die. And I tried to drink it and it didn't do anything. That's my medicine. It's also my poison, but it's my medicine. That has always been my medicine and it wasn't working. It wasn't doing anything. And so I tried that for the next couple of days and I, I can't. I can't, it doesn't, it's not, it's still not working. And I've kind of just evaluated what has been happening, especially these last six months and what has, you know, kind of, I laid there for a few days and got to kind of re relook at everything. And I remember this girl at this treatment center telling me this, sitting outside talking to me. And she told me, I finally got to a point when I realized that I could be happy or I could be drunk. And that really stuck with me. And that's what I was thinking about. And I really, to the core of me, realized that I wasn't going to have it both anymore. Like at one point, at one point in my life, it did make me happy, whether it was fake or not. But there was no way in hell that it was ever happening again. And it was only getting worse quickly. So I called the sober house that I'd stayed at, that I'd been kicked out of, you know, no one's talking to me, but I call the sober house and I say, I'm done. I don't have any money. I can't get any money, but I'm done. And is there any way that I can come back? And they said, yes. Oh man. And I had to wait for like, I don't know, like three days or something. And Oh my God, it was awful. But I waited and I, you know, tried to drink as little as I could, but this was like the only sober house in Austin that you don't have to have 30 days to go to. It's a high risk sober house. There's only one of them here that will take you in with like a couple days sober. It's incredible. Yeah. And, um, they let me in and, you know, I even got there a day early. I wasn't supposed to come until the next day. And I just came with all my, I just came with my bag (laughs) and I just said, I'll sleep on the couch. I'll sleep on the couch. And, you know, I'd never been in that situation before. I was, you know, fortunate, I don't know if it is fortunate really, but to be in a situation where my family always helped me. And, you know, in hindsight, you know, it wasn't until they didn't help me, they weren't helping me at all that, you know, I finally got off, you know, realized that this, I'm going to have to do this. And whenever I got into that sober house, I just felt, I mean, this enormous feeling of safety came over me. That's the only, only thing I can say about it is this enormous feeling of safety and being around, you know, people that know what I'm talking about but we're on the other side of it or trying to be on the other side of it. Right. Cause I was hanging out with people who knew what I was talking about, but they, didn't, <laughs> they weren't uh, trying to do anything about it. And that was August 26th, a couple of years ago. I started going to meetings again. I started yoga, man. I went throughout, throughout those years about, it was about eight years from when I took my first yoga class and then I got sober but through, through those years, if I ever had a little bit of sobriety, I was going to yoga like crazy. That was always kind of my barometer. Like, I'm doing really good if I'm doing yoga because that means, like, I have my shit together. Right. And I'm um, feeling good. And very quickly, yoga has always made me feel very powerful, like, um, mentally and physically. But it's always been a barometer. So I go to this yoga class. And I had been going previously because I had those six months sober. So I'd been really into that community. But I go to this... I go to the studio and I unroll my mat and I get into child's pose and I just start bawling like hysterically. 
And I was just like, oh my God, I think I'm going to make it. <sighs> or at least like I have some, I have a hope of making it because that mat like symbolized that hope to me. Yeah. And I have, I stayed, I just kept coming back and you know, that's really, I mean, for me personally, that has been my biggest, um, asset has been being able to find my power through yoga and that spiritual practice and switching, having that step in and be able to put myself in a place of power, like to find and dig that up, dig that up out of me that had been so hidden. And I think it saved my life. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, wow. It did save your life. So saved my life. And it's just been incredible. And of course it was hard. And, you know, I lived in that sober house for like three months and it, it sucked. You know, I shared a room with two other people. It's not fun. (laughs) Um, and shared a bathroom and all kinds of, all kinds of things you don't want to do, but you know, that, the yoga, and then one other piece that I'll say that I really think that changed everything is that, you know, before I had said that I hadn't told anybody, and I decided that I was going to have to tell people. And, you know, I thought about a couple of my girlfriends that were really strong women in my life that had long quit talking, long stopped talking to me, right. but um, that I'm like, what would they do in this situation? Because, you know, mentally I knew that the only thing I can't do is drink and use drugs. Like, I know that, but that's my everything. You take that away, I don't have anything left. Like, I thought I was going to be a shell of a person. I really, to my, I really, really did. I didn't think there was anything else there. But yeah, to take that away, it would be empty. But I thought about what these, what these two girls, what my two friends would say, and they would be like, they would own it. They would be like, and I can't drink. I can do everything else. I can't drink and I can't use, but I can do everything else and I can do it well. <laughs> so I was just going to fake that. So the next time somebody had asked me something about if I offered some guy had asked me to take me out for drinks or something, I was like, no, um, I don't drink anymore. I've done enough of that. Or I don't know what I said. I don't drink anymore. I'm in recovery or I've had my, my dance cards full. I use that sometimes. (laughs) And you know, the first time it felt so weird coming out of my mouth. I'm like, who's talking? But then it was, then it got easier and easier. And then people started asking me questions about it. And then it was like, no thing. And I'm like, that held me back for so long. It did just the thinking that I had made up some shame around it. But so also coming into my power on that aspect you know, of not hiding from it, being like, no, this is who I am. Like, here I am. And when those switches came on, it got easier and easier. And then things just started happening. And they haven't stopped happening. Um, Amazing thing. I mean, this sounds so cliche, but I I swear it's true. That massage, that spa that I worked at, that was such a fabulous job. We kind of had some mutual friends. And the, the owner called me a year later a year after I quit there. So I was about six months sober. And she said, Cole, I've heard you've been doing so wonderful and we're so proud of you. And we want you to come back to the spa. And I was like, Oh my God, like so happy. And I've just had to laugh because you know, all those AA people were right. Yep. <laughs> and just so funny. And things just, you know, continued to, to roll that way. You know, I got my yoga teacher training. I, things just started happening. All kinds of things started happening. Um, you know, I'm two years into it now. And uh, now I've, you know, studied with Nikki Myers. I am teaching the outpatient yoga and recovery group from the old rehab that I went to in Austin. Wow. So I have completely come full circle to being yeah. that lady that I listened to like eight years ago that I remember saying, I want to be her someday, but I probably can't because I won't ever be able to. But I have like completely came full circle. And I am that lady to these people. And seriously, they look at me and they're like, who, you? (laughs) No way, you're so healthy. I'm like, oh no. (laughs) I was a hot mess. 
but it's just amazing. And I'm teaching, um, yeah, I mentioned I'm teaching, um, I do Thai massage. I've done Thai massage for many years. I teach, I've been teaching Thai massage retreats in Bali and in Asia, uh, in Thailand. And um, that's incredible. Whenever I tell my story, um, whenever we all introduce each other at the beginning of the retreat, I can't tell my, any part of my story without at least throwing my addiction a line. So, of course, you know, I, I'll, I'll mention it. And, you know, if not every one of those people at some point during that retreat came up to me one by one in private, you know, in whatever, you know, their shame and told me something about themselves or something about their family or, you know, something personal to them. I just thought it was so interesting that, you know, we could have all had like a conversation, but, you know, it's one by one that they were able, you know, to open up to me about that. And, you know, the more that those things keep happening, just the more and more validated and the more, and I don't know if validated is the right word, but yeah, just the more that I see what like a boon this is for myself and for other people. And it's just, it's just phenomenal. <laughs> I would have never, ever, I had my two years, I had my two years sober in, um, Sorrento, Italy. Oh my God. Yeah, Jeez, I know. You're killing me. <laughs> and I was like, oh, my God. And I remember thinking I could never go to Italy because I was a big wino. That was one of my – Right. The thing I drank the most of, <laughs> you know, like four bottles a day. I'm like, I could never go to Italy. And my mother met me over there in Italy. Oh, man. And, beautiful. you know, we're working on a relationship in Italy. <laughs> and um, just, I mean, the things that have happened – I mean, there's all – there's all kinds of things that happen, but the things that are happened, like I could have, I could have like tried to make up what I wanted it to look like. And I would not have written it this well. No, they tell you that they say, don't sell yourself short. They do. Yeah. Don't sell yourself <laughs> short. Don't write, you know, you can make a list of everything you want to accomplish and you'd be selling yourself short. Yeah, totally. I mean, there's no way that you can believe it at the time, but it's, it's just true. I'm one of those people now. I'm, preaching that it works it's wild oh you're a miracle so that's your story <laughs> that's my story <laughs> yeah so, and you were gunning and running for eight years no i'm um no longer I, I started doing yoga eight years ago from i got sober when i was 29 so i started when i was 13 oh my god yeah wow. it's a long time that's that. a long time to be out there doing the deal you know um you answered a few already of the questions that I ask for the newcomers. You talk about your aha moment. You talk about, you know, what was keeping you from coming into recovery. Uh, that's all very clear and evident. But one thing that you did bring up uh, that I'd like to touch on is you said that uh, you'd been to a bunch of 30-day rehabs and you finally went mm -hmm. to a 90-day rehab. And that's what you would recommend. All right. What yeah. what did you do differently at the end of those 90 days? You know, the 90 days is needed. And it's not that they're teaching you stuff. And, you know, I've been to enough, I've been to many rehabs. And it's not that I'm learning stuff in there. That's not it. It's just, I, for me anyway, you're getting to do self-reflection. That's fantastic. But it's the separation, I think, for me. From the outside world. It's the separation from the outside world. It's separation and introspection. Yeah, definitely. I mean, for me personally, and you know, anyone who's like, you know, in the in a very severe way, thirty days, you're still detoxing. Like your mind is not clear, and the sober living for me was astronomical. I mean, I don't I don't know what would have happened if that wouldn't have happened. Perfect, Cole. You have such an amazing story. Oh, it's just absolutely it's it's heartbreaking. And it's so uplifting at the end because it's such a miracle. It's so amazing that, you know, you're alive today. It is just absolutely, it is a miracle. It is a miracle. And My last name's Chance. Yeah, Cole Chance. It's absolutely <laughs> I, beautiful. I used, to tell, I used to tell people that I wore that out. I used to tell my mom that all the time or like just tell people that they were like, so annoyed with me. <laughs> like you've had, you've had your chances, honey. It's fucking. It's fantastic. So, Cole, let's let's, yeah. let's dive into a little bit for the newcomers here. We've already answered some of the questions. I don't know if you want to expand any more on on what was really, 
you know, the first question I ask is, what was keeping you from getting clean or staying clean when you first got introduced to recovery? You kind of covered that, but was there anything else that you needed to, that you wanted to touch on on that aspect? You know, I really just didn't want it for a long time. Mm-hmm. I just don't think I was ready. I, I mean, I don't know how you can look at my st- story and not think <laughs> you're someone's ready, but I just wasn't. And right. even when I was going into rehabs and the hospitals and the detoxes and all of that, like I just wanted an, an immediate help. So I definitely think that you need to be real with yourself about, are you really ready? You know, I bartended through my 20s. I was the party girl. I mean, that's who I was. Like, that's who I remember telling telling a counselor, like, well, then buy me a rocking chair. Like, if I'm going to have to get sober, because my life will be over. Like, I'll just... <laughs> I didn't know. I had no idea. Yeah. I didn't think I would have a personality. I didn't think that I was going to be able to to dance or to laugh or to make love or to, to anything. I mean, I didn't have, I I didn't have any prior knowledge of life. That was probably one of the scariest things. I mean, just to think about it. I mean, actually just right now, it just kind of brings me to tears. Um, just that moment of being that really that terrified of not knowing yourself that not knowing yourself at all, but only knowing yourself as that to have that ripped away from you is horrifying. And that it's such a real feeling of, yeah, it's, it's yeah. terror, but I mean, you have to, I guess, get comfortable the unknown or to leave room for the unknown. And I don't know what finally brings somebody to that precipice, but yeah. Yeah. You, I tell you, I'm glad I asked you cause you, you said it beautifully. It painted a, a wonderful picture of, of that resistance to change. So I'm going to yeah. ask you then the next one. All right. Because you covered this too, but uh, at what point did you have a spiritual awakening, that aha moment in recovery when you finally accepted that you were powerless over drugs and alcohol, but for the first time had developed the hope that you could recover? On my yoga mat, when I unrolled that yoga mat, I was still, I still remember, I didn't want, I was still shaking. I felt awful, that anxiety that's like coursing through your veins. It's like palpable. And going in there and unrolling my mat and just this feeling of, you know, at, at the same time of despair, fear, and of hope, like all at the same time. And, you know, and for me to be in child's pose, which is like a pose of reference, reverence, of surrender. I mean, that's what that pose is. And, you know, it's, it's you know, some of the stuff that Nikki Myers touches on is like how, you know, these poses, you know, the physical you know, they bring, they also like can bring out the physical pose can bring, you know, an emotional response. And I, I wasn't even thinking about it whenever I got down and got into that pose. I wasn't even thinking about it. And it was just, it was just incredible. And I'll never forget that moment. And probably won't either anyone else in the class. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> All right. So moving on now. <laughs> do you have a favorite, Cole, do you have a favorite book that you would recommend to a newcomer? Oh, I do. I love to read. I'm a big reader. Um, okay, some of the ones that helped me, there's one called Drinking, A Love Story. Mm-hmm. And it's by a lady named Carolyn Knapp. And it is just, it's an incredible book. And it's about her journey. And I found that many years before I got sober, I just happened to find it at a flea market, like poking out at me. <laughs> Very auspicious. And that really, really resonated with me. There's another book called Still Water by William Alexander. Mm -hmm. And it is um, Alcoholism, Mindfulness, and Ordinary Recovery. He's a Zen Buddhist. And it's a very interesting approach about how to kind of find um, the extraordinary in everyday things. I thought that was a really great book. And then one other one that's really helped me is called Waiting. And it's a non-believer's guide to a higher power. And that one really helped me. What's it called again? Waiting. Waiting. Waiting, yeah. A Non-Believer's Guide to Higher Power. And that's by uh, Mara Hornbacher. What beautiful suggestions. I love it. Thank you. I've only heard of one of the books. So I love getting new suggestions. Oh, yeah, totally. I'm a book nerd. (laughs) Totally. Okay. And Cole, what is the best suggestion you have ever received? suggestion that I've ever received. Well, you know, I really think that, I don't know if this is a suggestion or not, but the thing that I recalled from that lady 
who uh, was at the, the treatment center who told me that, you know, you finally get to a point where you can be drunk and high, you can do have that life, or you could be happy and you can have everything else. And I just think that that's a really good, and it's not, I don't know if that's a suggestion, but something to ponder. It's beautiful. It's and beautiful. To, and to weigh put yeah. the scales. Well, with that being said, then what would be the, the, if you could give a newcomer only one suggestion, what would it be? I think just to leave room for the unknown. Um, otherwise, your story has already written itself and it's just going to get worse and darker. But if you leave room for, you know, the unknown possibility, then it can just be better than you ever imagined. <laughs> and I know that sounds cliche, but it is so true. Cole, this has been fantastic. Yeah, why not? Yeah, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much. Oh, yeah, no. Yeah, this is great. Thank I'm you. I'm really happy to share. Gosh. Now, do you have a webpage? <laughs> do you have, like, classes that you're currently teaching? I mean, I don't know, because you just said you finished the training, right? Yeah. So give us, give us your website yeah, and no, the best definitely. way for... Uh, our listeners to get a hold of you. Yeah, no, I've already been teaching yoga and doing all of that for for a bit. I just I'm just now finishing Nikki Myers training, uh, the yoga and recovery piece. But uh, www, well, you already know that part, obviously. <laughs> Colechanceyoga.com, and that has um, stuff about my yoga, my Thai massage, and it has a link to YouTube videos and kind of what I'm up to. I travel a lot. So I'm um, kind of do workshops wherever I am, wherever I'm traveling to. So I'll be in Colorado next over the winter. I'll be back in Vail. All right. Wonderful. Looking forward to it. I love it. Okay. We have now reached the end of our show. Thanks for joining us. And as we say here in Costa Rica, Pura Vida. Pura Vida. Thank you for joining us on the Share Recovery Podcast. To check out the show notes page on this interview or to thank our guests for sharing their story, go to www.thesharepodcast.com. While you're on the website, don't forget to sign up for our free newsletter to stay up to date on the latest news, podcasts, and interviews. Want to be one of our guests and share your story? Then go to our website and click on the Share Your Story button. We share our inspiring recovery stories every Tuesday. So subscribe to our show on iTunes or Stitcher Radio to get your free weekly download. We'll see you then. The opinions shared on this show reflect those of the individual speaker and not of any 12-step fellowship as a whole. And though we discuss 12-step recovery and the impact it had in our lives, we do not promote or endorse any 12-step anonymous program. 